0: Turn to the Lord in, uh, in prayer. Our Lord, our God, we just want to rejoice in you and give you much praise and glory and honor that you deserve. You are worthy to be praised and glorified and honored this morning. As we have sung, Lord, the one this earth, your creation will one day be filled with your glory. And we just want to rejoice in you for that and look forward to that day and live our lives in the hope, the blessed hope of the, of the sure coming of the glory of Christ. Help us now, Lord, to hear your word and submit ourselves to your word. Uh, we ask this in your name, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to launch into our, a lesson on uh Second to John and in a message that I've entitled lessons from the apostle All right. literally lessons from the greetings from an apostle to a Christian lady. And this this letter that we're studying this morning is amazingly brief when you compare it to many of the other letters in the Bible, many of the letters in the New Testament. Even only the letter of Second John is shorter now if you do a little comparison, I mean in my bible second John's on one page, third John's on the other. So you look at second John has 13 verses, third John has 15 verses. You might say, "Pastor, you got it wrong." I mean, second John is shorter. Well, second John has fewer verses, but third John has fewer words. So by all rights, it's the second shortest letter in the Bible. It's really uh, if if you blink, it'll be gone. Really. It contains a mere 245 words, which sounds like a lot until you start adding up how many words a day you use. And if you were to write a letter, how many words would you use? Probably not much more than this personal letter here. There's some who like to use lots of words, but John uses a brevity of words here um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to to bring us uh, this letter. Taken at face value, this is a letter that is written by a well-known spiritual leader. To a Christian lady and her children. The personal nature of this letter probably is the reason why there were some in the early years who were slow to accept it as a, a part of the canon of Scripture. The word canon uh, refers to the body of Scripture. It doesn't refer to a weapon in this case. So the canon of Scripture refers to a, a, a body of literature that is called, we know as the Bible, as Holy Scripture. And just as a reminder... The church doesn't um, make a letter scripture. God makes it scripture that all the church can do is acknowledge the work that God has done. So that's how we how we see this, um, that, that the church and the early church did not take John's letter and make it scripture. When John wrote it, he gave it a scripture and the church acknowledged it um, as such. But the fact that it was such a personal letter to one individual so short is probably one of the reasons why it was a little slower to be adopted as part of the canon than some of the other works. But there is strong evidence for the canonicity of 2 John. The evidence for the canonicity is strongly tied to the, the evidence of, for John, the apostle, being the author um, Arrhenius, Arrhenius uh, who lived in, in in the first century the say one seventy five to one ninety five uh, time frame details in his famous work he wrote a book called against heresies and in that book he quotes from second John two times uh, and in an inference that it is scripture so that's just one of the many many uh, things we could point to in an external sense by way of church history to point us to the fact to the canonicity of Scripture. It is significant, as one commentator highlighted, quote, there was no question in the minds of those church fathers who lived closest to the time of John, unquote, that this epistle was, as well as 3rd John, were written by the Apostle John. In other words, those who knew John best didn't question whether this letter was for him or not. The questioning really came a little bit later, several generations later. And even into, into modern times where people question whether John is, that second John is written by John. But the interesting thing is in church history, this book goes by no other title. Some of the, some of the other letters go by, have alternate titles that are circulated. This, there's none. It's simply the second of John. That's it. So that in and of itself Leads, uh, leads us to believe this was from John, and consistent with John, as we studied his gospel. Now we studied his first epistle. We know that John doesn't like to identify himself directly, so we shouldn't be surprised that he doesn't use his name. Well, what what can we say about this way uh, by this book by way of introduction? So, what I'm going to do is give you just a brief uh, overview or introduction of the of the letter of a whole, which is only 13 verses. So there's not a whole lot that can be said there. And then we're going to look at some lessons from this introduction. For a look at the first three verses this morning. And look at the lessons that we can learn from that greeting. So what can be said about this book by way of introduction? Well, first of all, we need to see it as a letter of contrast. And if you remember through 1 John, John often used contrast. Sometimes uh you know, one rut after the other, he would compare light with darkness and sin with righteousness and the sons of God to the sons of the devil or the evil one. So you see that contrast going on immediately in this letter, because it's brevity. The contrast is not quite so stark, but it's still there. The first part of the letter is really in a positive in nature. It it emphasizes walking in the truth and practicing the commandments of God. Um, really as a as an outpouring of love. The second part of the letter is primarily, you could say, negative, warning of the counterfeit teachers that are that are there indeed, and the need to protect the truth. So we're going to talk some about Christian hospitality and how Christian hospitality as a practical outworking of love needs to be moderated and guided by truth. So it's a letter of contrast. It's also a letter that emphasizes the intersection of love and truth. In the first six verses, the word truth appears five times. Considering that it's only 13 verses long, that's that's significant. And the word love appears four times. And these words really set the stage for what John wants to, the, the message that John wants to communicate to this elect lady and her children and by application to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These, this intersection of truth and love really set the stage for what John's going to say later in the epistle about hospitality and the need to exercise discernment when, when exercising Christian hospitality. And it's also a letter that calls for the exercise of discernment while walking in love. And that, inter- that, that talks about this intersection of love or, or really fleshes out the intersection of, of love and truth. Pastor MacArthur, in his summary of 2 John, gives a, a helpful uh, summary of the, mess- of the really letter's uh, message and its general application to us. And I'm just going to quote him here. He says, 2 John stands in direct antithesis to the frequent cry for ecumenism and Christian unity among believers. Love and truth are inseparable in Christianity. Truth must always guide the exercise of love. Love must stand the test of truth. The main lesson of this book is that truth determines the bounds of love and as a consequence, unity. Therefore, truth must exist before love can unite. For truth generates love. When someone compromises the truth... True Christian love and unity are destroyed. Only a shallow sentimentalism exists where the truth is not the foundation of unity, Think about that. Only a shallow sentimentalism exists where the truth is not the foundation for unity. With these things in mind, let's just read through the second letter of John. And then we'll look at the first three verses after that. I'm going to read the whole letter so that we get it in its context. Since it's so short, it's easily, you can easily do that. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son." If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. The Lord bless the, the reading of his word. So this morning, I, we're, like I mentioned, we're going to look at the first three verses, which is considered the introduction to this letter. And we're going to look at four lessons, uh, some more in detail than others. But I'd like to highlight four lessons that we could learn from uh, John's introduction here. The first lesson that we're going to look at is, I think this greeting gives us a lesson, a lesson in practical biblical leadership. What does a biblical elder look like on a personal level is really what I mean by that. Now, if we look at verse one, it just simply begins the elder to the chosen lady. And I, and I want us to look at both the author, how he's described here, as well as the recipient and how she is described, as well as her chosen. Really, it's recipients, chosen lady and her children. So when highlight, I want to highlight that this letter follows the typical pattern for a first century letter. It's not like a letter today. So a letter today, you would, if you're writing a personal letter. You would write it out, you know, dear John. And then you would write the maybe a brief introduction. You'd write the body. And at the very end, you'd sign your name. Well, that's not the way letters were written in the first century. In the first century, the typical way was the author put his name at the, at the front of the letter. And then the recipient. And then he would add some, usually some kind of greeting um, and some kind of commendation. And so we see all those elements here. So we see the author identified the elder. We see the uh, recipients identified the chosen lady and her children. We see a general greeting uh, given in verses two and in verses three. And it really an an accommodation uh, that bleeds not only from verse three, but uh, really into verse four. Um, We'll limit our look uh, at verses one to three this morning. But there are two things that stand out that are not typical to a first century letter. And they both have to do with identities. The identity of the author and the identity of the recipient. A normal first century letter would say, you know, Mark to Rhonda. Something like that. It would have a specific name. Many of Paul's letters function that way. It's Paul to a specific church or it's Paul to Timothy. But in this case... John chose not to identify himself personally, nor to identify the lady personally. Now, I will note that as we talk about this lady, I will make a case that this is someone that John knows personally and that knows him well. And perhaps in her hospitality had ministered to Paul in his many travels back and forth for the gospel's sake. Paul, I mean John. So just if I say... I'll just insert John. Or look at me funny so I can correct myself. It's one of those uh, humbling facts as a preacher in many words. And uh, sometimes you don't say the things you ought to say. So let's look at who is this author. Who is simply identified by the phrase the elder. The word elder is the Greek word Uh It's used, it's really an adjective that's being used as a noun. And it's from it's, we use the word in a transliterated way, in as in a presbyter, uh, for example, in the Presbyterian Church, where there's a the, the idea of presbyter. Um, it it really identifies someone who is elder, senior, older, more advanced in years. Could be just biologically. This adjective is used even of women in this sense in the Bible, an an older woman. Okay, so an elder was in this sense, in the sense that John is using it here could also be used as a description for those who are recognized leaders, spiritual leaders within the Christian church. And in that sense, elder here is used in a synonymous way with other biblical terms, such as pastor and overseer and shepherd. An elder is a pastor. An elder is an overseer. An elder is a shepherd. And, and all those are synonymous as already mentioned This epistle has been attributed to the Apostle John from very early in church history. Uh, Those who lived closest in time to the Apostle John do attribute this. uh, Most of them attribute this letter to him. Others just are silent on it. None of them are opposed to it. Um, Yet there have been people largely who are separate farther separated in time from the Apostle John who attribute the letter To an elder John. So this would not be John the Apostle. This is John the Elder. So you may read a commentary if you study this. That supports the view this is written by John the Elder. But there's nothing in this letter that actually demands that. And actually there's very little in church history that supports that view. That there is this elder John. Uh, Really the case lies around who else. Who else could simply write a letter to someone, beginning it with the elder, and it end up as sacred scripture at, in uh, for the church today. That it would be accepted as scripture. Right? There is no one in church, in, in, certainly in the scriptures, or, or really even church history, who is clearly identified uh, as with such authority, or as a person having such authority, and so well known that so well known that he could simply begin a letter with the elder there's there's no one else by this period of time and i should i should mention that this letter was written roughly the same time as first john so it's impossible to determine exactly when it was written but somewhere around 90 a.d in that time frame same time frame that first john was written likely it was written from ephesus just like first john so the idea is that there is there is at that period of time, all the other apostles had died off, had been martyred. John was the last apostle. So who else could write a letter like this at this time? Just simply the elder. Right? So what I'm saying is the case for any other author is very weak. A case for John being the author, even though he doesn't name himself, is quite strong. So. The thing I want you to highlight, as I've been saying, is the fact that he doesn't just call him an elder, but he calls himself the elder. That's how he describes himself. So the author would have been well-known, so well-known he doesn't need to identify himself. He would have been in a unique position because he wasn't just an elder. We believe that Scripture teaches a plurality of elders. So in local churches, there would be a plurality of elders but in this case, he describes himself as the elder, right? really pointing out to a, a unique role that this author had. One commentator suggests that the writer's self-designation as the elder points us to see the simple and solitary dignity of the last surviving apostle of Christ. D. Edmund Hebert notes, quote, the author's use of this unique designation and the conscious sense of authority in dealing with His readers in both of these short letters, he's referring to 2nd and 3rd John, are in full agreement with the early church tradition concerning the closing years of the Apostle John at Ephesus as the sole survivor of the Twelve Apostles. The only known titles for these letters of John support that view, unquote, as I mentioned previously to you. There there are no other... These letters circulated um, before they were even collected together, this particular letter was always under the heading of, of John. That was his title. Okay, the second letter of John. So let's look for a minute at the recipient who here in verse 1, we, we see it identified to the chosen lady and her children. So the recipients are identified as the chosen or I prefer uh, the other translation, elect lady because I think it that brings, that, brings it down a little bit more clear. The elect lady and her children. So as with the phrase elder, the phrase to elect a lady and her children has caused much debate as to the identity of this um, of these persons and the interpretations of of who these people are fall into two camps, a literal camp that is a literal interpretation and also a metaphorical interpretation. I'll briefly cover both of those just so you get a a flavor of this and and understand uh, what's going on here. So, D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, takes the literal interpretation. And he says this, and I quote It seems most natural to take the simple words of the epistle to refer to an actual lady and her children. The view is favored by the simplicity of the letter, the writer's reference to having met some of her children, in verse 4, the mention of her sister's children, in verse 13, the reference to the elect lady's house, in verse 10, as well as the analogy of the third epistle. Which certainly is addressed to an individual. It is interesting to notice that the formula of address in both epistles is exactly the same, unquote. And one of the things he points out, if you just let your eyes look at um, Third John, verse 1, he said, it, it reads like this, the elder to the beloved Gaius. So there very clearly the uh, recipient is identified there, and it's very similar to Second John. So he's saying that supports the view that this is a, this is a literal woman and her children. Now, in this, in this interpretation, elect here would refer to the recipient really having been chosen of God. In other words, this is the Apostle John's really um, affirmation of this person and her children as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not just in a sense of being associated with the church, but in a sense of actually uh, being truly of him. Because he describes them as elect, the elect lady and her children. So for sure, in her case, uh, she was one who was known for walking in the truth. So John would have applied the the test of faith that he provides in 1 John. He would have applied that to this particular lady and found that she had passed the test from his perspective as as an apostle. So he describes her as elect. And as one commentator notes, the, the source of her election, as anyone else's, was God's grace, not human will. But, but this lady, as all who accept God's grace, had freely responded to God's call in their hearts and lives through the preaching of the gospel. So the lady here seems to be a generic but respectful designation of someone the apostle knew and loved. And I, I would argue that really verse 13 or verse 12, when he, when he says that I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that your joy may be made full really indicates of the apostles um, kind of personal knowledge of this lady and her children. So he wasn't responding to, just to something he had heard. And, and this is Mark speaking, not scripture. I believe this is probably a lady who, who exercised Christian hospitality uh, to Paul and his many travels and those who traveled with him that uh, exercised hospitality. I said Paul again, John. John. Um, to her, uh, that she exercised hospitality to John and in his many uh, ministry travels in the area. We, d- we don't know exactly what uh, where she lived. We're not told in Scripture. Um, so that becomes uh, really a moot point that's not really important to the interpretation of the text. So the, there's the first view, and that is a literal interpretation. The second view, and there, there are quite a few commentators who fall into this view, that they see a metaphorical interpretation here. Glenn Barker in the Expositor's Biblical Commentary takes this view. He says, and I quote, this, this view noting that the statement, Whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, which is, which is the end of verse 1. He says that that statement seems more appropriate as a reference to a church than to an individual. And they make cases uh, throughout the epistle that, that these, the message of the letter seems m- much more appropriate when it's viewed as uh, a church that's receiving this rather than just an individual. And with this view, the lady represents uh, one local church and the references to her children represent other local churches and fellow believers within the fellowship of Christ. Now Sch- scholars reason that referring to a lady instead of to the specific church would be one way of protecting the church. You remember that during this time the church was under persecution, and there, because of that persecution, there were times where authors didn't use names, um, and they they just used a reference to the church itself and not just uh, to names. So uh, there are places where that's done there, in other scriptures, or places in, in other scriptures in the Bible where that is also done. So that's their argument here. But at, the, but at the end of the day, even Glenn Barker notes that no dogmatic conclusion about the um, about the addressee is possible because of the ambiguity of the text, unquote. So what's the best way to resolve this? Is this a letter to a lady or is this a letter to a church? Well, I, I return to, to some of the. Her, to a hermeneutical principle which we've been teaching you on Wednesdays, and that is this: if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. If the plain sense, that is the literal sense, makes sense, then seek no other sense. There is nothing in the context that that would force you to seek a metaphorical interpretation of this text. It is completely understandable by just taking the view that this is a literal lady a Christian lady and her children to whom the Apostle John was writing. We don't don't need to go look for a metaphorical sense. Donald Burdick concludes, and I quote, The principles of biblical interpretation would seem to direct one to adopt the most natural meaning of the passage, namely that an individual lady and her children were the intended receivers of the letter, unquote. And because that is the plain, really reading and interpretation of the text, Again, reinforces why I think some early in church history were perhaps a little hesitant to accept this as Holy Scripture. But I, but I remind us that some, letter, some letters, for example, of Paul's were written to an individual. That doesn't mean it's not applicable to the church. As we'll see, there are many areas where this is applicable to the church. And there are many lessons for us in this letter. Though it's written to a lady through the Holy Spirit, it is given to us by way of application. Now, because of, of, of that, I would say it's because this is Holy Scripture. We don't really need to identify the author with any kind of I mean, the author, the, uh, the author for sure. But the recipients with any kind of certainty and whether you take the view that this is the um, written a letter written to a church or a letter written to an individual lady, Christian lady the application really for us is the same today. We just study it and look at what timeless principles are held there for us and then seek to apply those. So all of this by way of introduction, getting to what I promised in the beginning, were lessons. What lessons do we have? Are there for us in this text? Well, first of all, is this lesson on biblical leadership. Lesson on biblical leadership. Think about this. Here you have and aged and very prominent in um, not self-prominent, but he was a prominent person. He was the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death and resurrection. He was the last apostle. All the others had died off. He's a very, I would say an important person during this time in the development of the church. There were many things he could have been doing. I'm sure there were many important oversight tasks that the apostle needed to do. I'm sure there were many false teachers that he thought about that he needed to to go and try and silence who were rising within the church. I'm sure he thought of many Bible lessons that needed to be taught to the churches that he was ministering to. And I'm sure he knew that there were many church leaders who needed further discipleship and training. Yet all of that, John, in the midst of all that, John took time to minister personally to this lady, to this Christian woman and her children. It's just a beautiful example on how pastors, shepherds, though, though busy and they're called to be busy and, and we are called to be busy in the work of the ministry, must never be too busy to minister on the individual scale. You know, you can listen to many sermons on the Internet. Okay? You know that. A lot of good ones. Some really good teachers. But they're not there to minister to you on an individual basis. And that's why you need a local church with local pastors, elders, who minister to you on a personal basis. And I just want to appeal to you to say that no matter how busy Pastors, i speak on a personal basis, how busy I am. I always want to make time to help you and to be with you. And where there are areas that I know about, I will make that time. But I don't know everything that's going on in your life. And I just implore you just, just to reach out when you need help or guidance. It doesn't have to be a massive problem. I would love to help you walk through that and shepherd you through that. So that is my call. It is my duty but it's also my love as I love you and the Lord to be there with you and to help help guide you in understanding the scriptures and the application of the scriptures so it's really a, a just a very practical lesson on leadership you, you know it's, it'd be like it to use a modern day analogy it'd be like the President of the United States writing to you individually not to gain money from you but just because he cared for you and he wanted to offer some guidance right? and you don't have to even put any names in there so that you don't aren't detested one way or the other but the point of it is you have you have the apostle taking time to write to a christian lady who needed some guidance and some teaching he made time to personally counsel her and her children which really brings us to our next lesson from this introduction and that is that the lesson in love that we're given in this text. The lesson of love. Look with me at verse, verses 1 and 2. Love is mentioned two times in these three verses. Pick it out. The letter to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in love, and truth and love. John shows us that true believers love one another. That was the main message, one of the main messages or themes that John developed in his first epistle was that true believers will love each other. Do you want to know whether or not John practiced that? Here you see it. This is a, this is a lesson in practical love. Not only did John command it and teach that, that that the brethren would love each other, but you see it enacted in his very letter. It's his proof that he loved other believers, even even this Christian lady. He didn't just love churches on a on a larger scale or a collective sense. He loved individuals whom he knew to be walking the truth and followers of Christ. Because of the distortion and And really the contamination of the world in our minds and thinking, we must reiterate, this is not a romantic love. This is not John reaching out to a a lady and and kind of romanticizing her. This is not at all. This is agape love, the self-sacrificing love that motivated the father to send the son to be our savior. And the love which motivated the son to go to the cross on our behalf and to die on our behalf. This is the love which... The Apostle John talks about this is agape love. John is, is really just living out what he wrote in his first letter. Remember, uh, for example, 1 John 4, 7 talks about how that those who are born of God will love others who are born of God. This love for the elect lady and her children was not only a love that John had, but, but if you look with me in verse, um, the end of verse 1, he says, But also all who know the truth. So, the, again, that phrase is the one that people say best applies to a, really to a local church rather than a particular lady and her children. Because not all would have known um, them, her personally. And with that, we would say we would recognize, yes, the word all, all who know the truth. When John is using that, he's not referring collectively to every single believer in the entire world at this time. For they didn't even know this elect lady personally. The the, all that he is referring to are all those who would know her and were also in the truth. So that's who he's referring to. This letter is really just a letter of a a practical expression of love. This Christian lady needed affirmation and guidance in her ministry of hospitality. and And John the Apostle writes in love to give her that very thing. And really, by extension, loving us by giving us what we need to hear. Because in our day, in our day and age, we want to just emphasize love and jettison truth. But what the scriptures are calling us to do here is to balance truth and love. Or better put, to allow truth to guide our practice of love. So this greeting gives us a, a very practical lesson in love. This greeting also gives us a lesson. In this centrality of truth. As I mentioned previously, truth is mentioned four times um, in multiple times in this epistle. It's mentioned four times in these three verses. It's mentioned five times if you include verse four. We see truth mentioned again. Just reread it looking for the word truth. To the lady, to the elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Notice how John interweaves truth and love, really mentioning truth more than love in this particular introduction shouldn't read too much into that, but just know these these things are interlinked. They are inseparable in the mind of God, truth and love. He does not jettison one for the other. And in fact, truth, in this case, the truth, the truth of the gospel is the reason and wellspring for that very love. Look with me at verse 2. So in verse 1, John says, whom I love, speaking to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Let that flow right to verse two for the sake of the truth or better put, because of the truth. And notice it's not because the truth which dwells in her. So it has nothing to do with her because of what? Because of the because of the truth, which abides where in us. So you see here, there's some really fascinating things going on in this introduction. One, it's it's the truth which produces the love of this lady and the love for children. What does that speak of? Speaks of the regenerating nature of the gospel. And as the gospel comes into our lives, it regenerates us and and aligns with what John said earlier in his epistle, that those born of God will love others born of God. See, it's real easy for us to love other people who are like us already, That we like them um, because they like all the same things that we like. Those kind of people are really easy to love. That doesn't take agape love to love people like that. When you have an affinity with somebody that just like all the same things, it really doesn't take much practice of the spiritual disciplines to love them. But what happens when somebody's slightly different? They have different likes, They have different dislikes. They come from a different social strata. We read James 2 today about how in the early church, there were some churches who would practice favoritism towards the rich. It's real easy for the rich to love the rich. Real easy for the poor to love the poor. But how is it that the rich can love the poor? Or the poor can love the rich? How is it that the Greek can love the Jew? Or the Jew love the Greek? It is because of the truth. And that message still rings true for us today. How, does, how do people from different cultures, black, white, uh, doesn't matter. You put, the, you put the stigma in there. How can, a, how can a person raised as a Muslim love a person raised as a Jew? The gospel unites. If the gospel can bring together the Jew and the Gentile, they can bring together anybody from any kind of background um, whatsoever. And the gospel has even been known to bring together someone who was a former Nazi with someone who was formerly persecuted in the prison camp. There are cases like that, where someone who was a prisoner of war by the Nazis later through the gospel. And the same gospel working in a person who cooperated with the Nazis brought them together in marriage and love. And the only way that happens is through the gospel. There's no other earthly explanation for that. So all that to say that that, that this intersection of, of truth and love comes together um, with this uh, in, in this epistle. Right? And that's that's all that's embedded in that first that first part of the phrase, for the sake of the truth, or because of the truth, which abides in us. And notice here, when he uses the word abide, He's linking it with what he said in 1 John and what Jesus said about the truth. If my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it should be done for you. you That's an expression of our love. These aren't just truths you put in your head. These are truths which come to reside within your soul, abide within you, and guide you in how you think and how you live. You know, it's, it's, it's great when people memorize tons of scripture. But we'll just say, and I'll repeat this again because it needs to be repeated. You can memorize the entire Bible. You can get the question to every Bible quiz correct and still go to hell. I have known kids who have memorized hundreds of verses have gotten the Iwana Timothy Award, which is on a different platform, but it's like the highest of the awards in memorizing scripture who walk away from Christ. Because they don't let that truth abide within them. They are a hearer of the word of God, but not a doer of it. Not that effectual doer. So you see what John is saying is that that truth comes and abides within us. And notice he says, will be with us forever. This isn't just a temporary thing. That a flash in the pan, that truth comes to live within and transform, and it will always be with us, as the Lord will always be with us. This is the truth that regenerates us. And I, I want to requote something I read from about, or quoted from MacArthur in the beginning. Truth must exist before love can unite, for truth generates love. And that truth comes comes within and lives within and totally transforms us. So we see a little glimpse of that in John's uh, greeting here in this letter. So let's move from the lesson of the centrality of truth on to the fourth lesson. That is a lesson of the blessings of salvation, which we see in verse 3. Here John writes, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, from... God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love. So this this verse is in some sense follows a typical pattern of a of a letter, but it is adapted by John to sound very Pauline like. If you notice that, if you notice Paul's letter, John is sounding almost like Paul in this in this sense in this passage. If you go to, to read some of Paul's Letters. Grace, mercy, and peace. And he doesn't say to you, he says, will be with us from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son, the Father, in truth and in love. So, what is the source of these blessings? Clearly identified as not just God, God the Father, but John, in support of, of all that he's taught us about the deity of Jesus Christ. Points out Jesus Christ as the Son of the Father. And again, here we need to, when we read the phrase, the Son of the Father, understand that in a theological sense. That is a claim to deity. So, John, the author of this letter, is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ by using that designation and by, by really calling it out. Because remember, that very fact was under attack by many in the, uh, out, within the church and even outside the church during this time. So he's affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is uh, is equal with the Father. And they are together as one God, the source of all the blessings of salvation. And these blessings are called out as grace, mercy, and peace. Notice the triad of these characteristics. Grace, what is that? That's the undeserved favor of God. One commentator noted that grace is is the free and unmerited favor of God bestowed upon guilty and unworthy individuals in and through Jesus Christ. The free and unmerited favor of God bestowed on the guilty and unworthy individuals in and through Jesus Christ. So by believing in Jesus Christ, by not just intellectually believing, but by exercising trust and faith, God opens the floodgates of his grace and gives us, Everything that we don't deserve. It's undeserved favor of God. We deserve his wrath and condemnation, yet he gives us grace. The next characteristic of of the blessings of salvation is that of, uh, in verse 3, of mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is kind of, in some ways, is the twin sister of grace. So grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So from God's standpoint, he exercises his mercy by not, receive, by not giving us what we deserve. We deserve wrath and condemnation. He doesn't, he doesn't give us that. So one person explained that the word mercy, which occurs only here in John's writings, denotes God's pity and compassion for those in trouble and distress. Unquote. It is, a, it is a, the mercy of Christ, where he looked upon Jerusalem as a as a city that he loved and longed to for it to, to win over, and for that for a city that he longed to repent and turn away from sin. And then the third part of that description of salvation, the blessings of salvation, is peace. Peace. This is really the end result of mercy and grace. This is what we experience. You know that you if you believe in Jesus Christ, you know you have his undeserved grace that's poured out upon you. But but grace isn't like a feeling. You know it intellectually, but you don't feel it. And the same with mercy. You know mercy when you see it, but it's not necessarily a feeling. It generates a feeling, a feeling of thankfulness. But mercy in and of, of itself isn't something that's necessarily experiential is what I'm saying. It's objective. But here, peace points us not, to the, not just to the objective peace that we have with God, but also to the subjective experience that we have through God's grace and mercy poured out upon us, we experience his peace. One commentator explained that, that peace is a third term in this Christian formula, flows from the experience of grace and mercy and denotes that an inner sense of tranquility and well-being, which is the sure result, unquote. And this isn't just a peace um, uh, that's falsely created. It's not a mirage. It's not fake. A lot of people sometimes think they're at peace with God when they are not. This is true peace. The peace that comes through God's grace. That comes through his mercy. The grace and mercy and peace that are found only by having faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you're here this morning and, and do not know whether you're saved or not, know that the gospel is for you today. If you believe in your heart that, that Jesus is the Christ and the God that raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Lord's words promise you that. As we think about this, this second letter of John, let, let the theme of truth and love uh, just repeatedly come to your mind. Never let love leave you. Never separate truth from love. These two are properly bound together uh, in God's truth and should be in ours as, as well. And we need to remember that to to pursue Christian love without truth is doctrinal error. And the same is the other way around. If we just practice on what is true without practicing love, we're also falling into doctrinal error. And we want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and learn all that we can to be effectual listeners and doers of the word of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we just want to thank you for your grace, your mercy, your peace, which comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to rejoice in you and just thank you for your great love with you, with which you love us. Help us, Lord God, to meditate upon the truths of your word about these lessons and biblical leadership of Love and the centrality of truth and the blessings of salvation. May these things, Lord, um, be truths which we meditate on uh, all through the day and and week for your glory and for our edification and good. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.